Under the old covenant, God commanded Israel to feast and rejoice on a regular schedule. Every seventh day, every Sabbath was a feast day in which the whole nation was to stop working, worship the Lord. And as Nehemiah said to the Jews, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God commanded that every seventh day be a day of rejoicing, a day of feasting. And as if uh, once a week was not enough, he then added to that weekly feast three annual festivals that lasted a whole week, three extra weeks of what we would call uh, holidays. So uh, in the ancient Hebrew calendar, at least one fifth of the year involved some kind of religious festival. The God of the Old Testament is a God of feasting. Now, uh, if God commanded all these regular feasts, we might wonder if he also commanded any regular fasts. And if so, how uh, often? Uh, Does anyone know uh, how many days of fasting are commanded in the Old Testament? Any bright children out there? Want to take a guess? Yeah. 40, okay, and uh, 40 would be a good guess, right? 40 is a time of testing. Jesus fasts for 40 days. Uh, that, that's a good, good thought, but it is uh, a little high. Any other uh, guesses? How many days of fasting? Molly? 50. Uh, we, got, we, got to, we got to shoot lower than 40. <laughs> two, was that two days in a week? Wink is close. The answer is one. (laughs) There is only one day, one day that God commanded the Jews to fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. So it's uh, Tishri the 10th, the 10th day of the seventh month, 10 days after the new uh, civil year uh, began. Uh, This is what God says. He says, for on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. That's Leviticus 16, 30 to 31. The prophet Isaiah takes this affliction of the soul to refer to fasting in Isaiah 58, and this is the only regularly commanded day of fasting for Israel. Uh, We do see later in Israel's history that uh, civil leaders, the government, had authority to proclaim a fast in times of a national distress or what we would call, you know, a a time of emergency. And people were, of course, free to fast uh, on non-feast days if they desired. But in terms of what God prescribed, commanded to the nation, he overwhelmingly commands feasting for over a fifth of the year while fasting for only one day in the year, and that on the Day of Atonement. So just uh, to give you an idea of the kind of God uh, that you serve. In our text this morning, we have the beginning of various controversies that are going to follow Jesus for the rest of his earthly ministry. Uh, By now, it is clear that Jesus is someone to be reckoned with. He is gaining in popularity, and with that popularity comes All of the fun things, envy, jealousy, and false accusations from the ruling class. 
Jesus is experiencing what uh, really any of us would experience if we were to say, uh, you know, run for uh, run as the Republican candidate for the presidency. Right. If any one of us were nominated to run for such a powerful office, uh, prepare to have your life ruined. Right? Uh, they're going to dig up everything you ever said. You know, that mean letter you wrote to uh, your classmate in fifth grade. They're going to look at all your old tweets, all your, they're going to go through your emails. And if you're squeaky clean, if they can't find anything, uh, what are they going to do? Yeah, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to manufacture some evidence of you saying the N word somewhere or something like that. Right. So uh, this is basically what Jesus is experiencing. This is what eventually uh, puts him on the cross. Uh, The scribes and Pharisees are coming up with accusations. And specifically in our text, uh, they're, they're focusing on these Sabbath laws. If the Pharisees can prove that Jesus has broken the Sabbath, then they win, right? They prove him to be a sinner and a fraud and therefore not the Messiah, So in our text this morning, we have uh, three different scenes that revolve around what it means to observe the Sabbath. So the outline, uh, verses 18 to 22, there the people ask, why don't Jesus' disciples fast? So why aren't they fasting? Verses uh, 23 to 28 is a debate over whether Jesus' disciples are breaking the Sabbath. And then verses 1 to 6 uh, of chapter three, take up the question, uh, what then is lawful to do on uh, the Sabbath? So that's where we're going. Uh, let's start in verse 18. We'll walk through our passage together. Verse 18 says, and the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast and they come and say unto him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Now remember uh, the whole context here. Uh, Jesus has just feasted with his new disciple, Levi, the tax collector, or Matthew. He's just uh, left this feast. He's eating and drinking with publicans and sinners. And that table fellowship, that ministry to the spiritually sick, to whom he has come as a physician, provokes the religious leaders to question his methods. And so they ask, why don't your disciples fast like the rest of us do? Um, In Jesus' day, it was customary for Pharisees to fast twice a week. Uh, That would be on Mondays and Thursdays. And throughout the history of Israel, fasting was something that you did as a sign of repentance and mourning for sin. Uh, So fasting is uh, kind of a voluntary death. You are forsaking earthly things. You're dying to your uh, fleshly appetites so that God might have favor upon you. Um, And in that sense, fasting is a very good uh, thing to do. Uh, The Pharisees uh, knew rightly that the nation was under judgment. It was the nation's sins that had caused the exile and destruction of the first temple. And it was the nation's sins that were presently keeping them from experiencing the blessings and prosperity of God's covenant. So, you know, you read Deuteronomy 28, there's all these blessings if the nation keeps covenant. He's going to make you the head and not the tail. You know, no one's going to miscarry. No one's going to be sick. There's all these wonderful blessings that are promised. And when those blessings aren't happening, you're meant to conclude, okay, we've clearly broken God's covenant, which is uh, what the Pharisees rightly understood. So uh, it is commendable and even right that the Pharisees should fast. But to fast from food without also fasting from sin was, of course, to defeat the purpose of fasting. 
And that is what uh, the Pharisees were doing, as we shall see. So the question comes to Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like the rest of us? And how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds cunningly with a question. Jesus said unto them, verse 19, can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Um, This is a bombshell of a response uh, because in the Old Testament, who is the bridegroom? Who is the one who marries the nation? What is, uh, you know, Song of Solomon all about? It's about the love between God and his people. In scripture, God is the bridegroom. Isaiah 54, 2 says, For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. So all through the Psalms, all through the Bible, you see this. God is the great king who marries the nation and gives them his name. Uh, The high priest had the name of the Lord Yahweh written upon his forehead. So just as a husband, uh, in our culture at least, gives his last name to his wife, so also God put his name, Yahweh, upon his people. And they were commanded at Sinai in the Ten Commandments not to take the Lord's name in vain. So the covenant between God and Israel is spoken of in Scripture as a marriage covenant. And Israel is sadly frequently called an unfaithful bride, a harlot a spouse who whores after other gods and worships the idols of foreign nations. So when the prophets foretell uh, the coming of a new covenant, it is really the promise of a future wedding. That is what the promise of the new covenant is. It's kind of a a save the date for a wedding that is going to take place in what they call the latter days or the last days. God is going to come as king and put away all the sins of his people. And when they are married, then the wedding feast shall begin. So when Jesus poses this question back to his interlocutors, he is implicitly, or we might even say just explicitly, claiming to be God. He is calling himself clearly the bridegroom. And his disciples then are of the wedding party, what he calls here children of the bride chamber. And so because in Jesus, the wedding feast has come, come, the king has arrived, Jesus is saying it would be improper for the wedding party to fast, right? That would be unheard of. Uh, uh, our weddings typically last just a day, but, but a Hebrew wedding would last a whole week. It's a whole week of feasting, and it would be a great sign of disrespect to fast during that feast time, right? It, it would be incongruent. Part of uh, the good news of the gospel is that we feast with God. And in scripture, Jesus reveals what God does when he comes to earth. What does God do when he comes to earth? He goes to people's houses and he eats with them. He goes into people's houses and eats with them. Uh, Commentators have noted, especially in the gospel of Luke, pretty much every single thing that happens in Luke's gospel happens either at the table or in between meals, going from one meal to another. It is uh, the eat, most eating-ist of the gospels, the gospel of Luke. And uh, so if you like food, um, the gospel of Luke is for you. Uh, but we also see that really in, in all the gospels. Uh, John is more explicit with this, where he, he places the first miracle Jesus does at 
a wedding in Cana, right? Turning water into wine. This is, of course, a sign that the wine is about to flow, the new wine that the prophets uh, foretold. So Jesus is the God of feasting. Jesus is the God who commands one-fifth of the time to be feasting, at least, and just one day of fasting, and that on the Day of Atonement. In verse 20, there is then a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. He says, uh, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. Uh, So Jesus does not come to abolish fasting altogether. There is a time uh, to feast. There is a time to fast. Ecclesiastes says there's a time for everything. But the time of fasting will take place after his death. He then poses two riddles to them, two riddles to further demonstrate why his disciples are not fasting. So verses 21 to 22. And think think about uh, if you can understand the riddle, because... uh, you know, you read the commentators throughout church history. Uh, no one agrees on the, on the answer to the riddle. I'll, I'll give you my, my best shot. But uh, think about uh, what is going on in this riddle here. He says, no man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filleth it up taketh away from the old, and the rent or the tear is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. The bottles here is old King James for wine skins, and a wine skin was probably from the skin of a goat. So, you know, Mount Capra, if you need a new product launch, there, there you go. You could do two wine skins. You can send me royalties for that idea. Uh, so these are probably goat skins. Uh, so if you're wondering about bottles bursting, these aren't glass bottles. These are uh, goat skin uh, bottles. And in the ancient world, uh, everybody, uh, everybody knew that both wine skins and garments would be destroyed if you tried to uh, connect new with old. Uh, so what is Jesus saying here? Well, I think what he's saying is that uh, the customs or rites or traditions of the old covenant would burst if the wine of the kingdom is poured inside. And that's actually what church history testifies to, right? Uh, circumcision, all the sh- types and shadows fall away, and then the, the kingdom, uh, the new law comes. New wine or new cloth needs a new form that can grow and expand with it. And the wineskins and cloths of the old world, Jesus says, are insufficient. So that's why Jesus' disciples don't fast. I think that the disciples are the new bottles. I think they are the new cloth and the old forms will not do. Uh, whatever conclusion you make about the bottles and who, who's who in, in this situation, uh, it has to justify why the disciples are not fasting. So it has to support that that argument. So I think that's probably the most likely scenario here is uh, the disciples are the new bottles. They're the new cloth and the old firms, the old forms will not do. John came fasting. Jesus comes feasting and the disciples are members of uh, the wedding party. Um, If you have other ideas about what that means, you come, you know, tell me when you get a chocolate after uh, after service. Moving now into the second scene in our text. Uh, First, the disciples are uh, disparaged for not fasting. And now in verses 23 to 28, they are charged with the crime of Sabbath breaking. Uh, And also, you just notice the tactic of uh, the devil here, right? They're not attacking Jesus directly, kind of yet, 
they're really starting to attack his followers. Because as we know, often the followers do not live up to the leader's you know, actual standards. So they're trying to kind of smear the disciples and then smear Jesus as a, as a result of it. So now they're going to charge uh, the disciples with uh, Sabbath breaking. Verse 23. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. And his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And by the way, corn here just refers to uh, the, the kernel, not, uh, you know, husks of corn. Uh, this is probably a wheat field here. Uh, so here the charge from the Pharisees is that the disciples are working on the Sabbath. As they pass through a field, they grab a head of grain, rub it in their hands, and eat the kernels. The Pharisees see this and say, aha, that's harvesting crop. That's work. That violates the Sabbath. Now, I want you to think about this. Before we see how Jesus answers this charge, it is a good practice, a good exercise uh, to see how we would respond if we were in this situation. So imagine you're a disciple, it's it's the Sabbath, you're walking through the field, you're you're grabbing some grain, and they say, that is Sabbath breaking. How would you respond if all you had was the Old Testament? It's all you had was the Torah. And you have to justify, you know, the Sabbath breaking, you could uh, be put to death for breaking the Sabbath. Some people were put to death for it. So this is a pretty serious charge. How would you respond to them? Well, there are a few There are a few possible responses you could give. Uh, One possible argument is that Deuteronomy 23 makes provision for what the disciples are doing. So this is what it says in Deuteronomy 23, uh, verses 24 to 25. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So notice the law here. It's permissible for someone to pass through your field and eat some grapes or eat some grain, but they weren't allowed to collect them or, you know, get a big Tupperware bucket to put it all in. You had to just use uh, your hand. This was, of course, a gracious provision for travelers and the poor, uh, you know, before there was McDonald's at every exit. Furthermore, in Leviticus 23, 22, it says this, uh, and this is a, a command to people who have the fields, to the owners of the fields. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. So this was the, what we would call kind of the social safety net that God provided for the poor. Uh, So it wasn't this kind of government handout. It was food left at the edges of the fields. And you can see how this plays out in the whole story of Ruth. The whole story of Ruth revolves around these laws for gleaning. So the disciples were, uh, I think, well within the law of God to do this. And we might say that this is even especially appropriate on the Sabbath day, which is supposed to be a day of eating, a day of feasting. If the Sabbath comes and uh, you open the refrigerator and you run out of food, there's nothing in there, uh, it is totally right and good to go to the store or somewhere and grab something. If your wife forgot an ingredient for the Sabbath meal, it's good and right to go and get it. Whether from, you know, the garden right outside or the grocery store, the Sabbath is to be a day of feasting and rejoicing. 
So that, that's just one possible defense, and perhaps you can think of others. Uh, but let's see how Jesus mounts his argument, because this is really a profound and fascinating use of scripture that Jesus deploys here. Verses 25 to 28. And he said unto them, have ye never read what David did when he had need and was in hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is Lord also of the Sabbath. This is a a very profound use of scripture. And there are uh, multiple arguments embedded here. Uh, We heard earlier in the service, 1 Samuel 21, which is the the proof text that Jesus is using here. And to understand Jesus' argument, you really have to understand that Old Testament passage, 1 Samuel 21. So let me just briefly summarize that scene for us, that text that we heard earlier. So remember, uh, uh, Jonathan has told David that King Saul wants to kill him. So he makes this covenant, uh, Jonathan and David make this covenant together, and then David flees to Nob to the tabernacle. So he's, he's running for his life. He's already been anointed king. He's already killed Goliath. He's, he's all, already served as a faithful soldier in the army. Uh, but King Saul is jealous and he wants to kill him, right? Sound familiar? It's just like uh, the gospel story. So David goes to Nob where the tabernacle is situated and the priest there is Ahimelech. Remember, it's not a Biathar, as Jesus says. It's actually Ahimelech. Uh, David is hungry. It is a Sabbath day. And he asks Ahimelech for five loaves of bread for him and his men. And remember, uh, the priest says, why are you here alone? So there's no men with him. He's just by himself. Ahimelech says, there is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. David says, yes, the men and their vessels are holy. And so Ahimelech gives him holy bread from the holy place uh, to eat. So we might wonder, and there's debate even amongst the Jews on this point, whether this was lawful. Was this lawful or not? And someone might say, well, Jesus says right here that it is not lawful to eat but for the priests. So uh, what is going on here? Um, In the parallel passage of this uh, of um, Matthew's version of this same conversation, conversation, Jesus adds this. He says, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. So I think what Jesus is doing here is he is adopting the Pharisees' definition of what is lawful and not lawful and then refuting it. So he's saying that, okay, if that is your definition of Sabbath breaking, then David and the priests break the Sabbath too, right? That, that's what he says. He says, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are, are blameless. He then tops it off by saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So let me kind of break down this argument because it has multiple levels to it. For one, um, if taking some grain in your hands on the Sabbath day was breaking the Sabbath, then David was a far worse Sabbath breaker. 
For David is doing uh, work for the king, right? So notice he comes to Ahimelech and he's like, yeah, I've been sent here on this special mission from the king. <laughs> so he, you know, he's very cunning in how he, he's trying to protect Ahimelech, by the way. So David is doing work for the king on a special assignment together with his uh, possibly also fictional young men, right? Uh, that is the reason he gives to Ahimelech for his urgent need. I'm doing the king's bid- business. And if you concede that point, you grant it, well, then Jesus and his disciples are good. So depending on what kind of Pharisee you are, you might buy that argument and say, okay, I I guess they're all right. However, if you want to argue the point, Jesus has another argument for you, namely that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, you could argue that even if David and his men were not holy, if they had not been kept uh, from women, it still would have been right to give him the holy bread to keep him from starving, right? The preservation of life takes precedent over the ceremonial cleanliness. This is one of the other principles of the law. There's a different weight that is given to laws. But if you still don't buy that argument, Jesus has another kind of trump card argument, which is that uh, he's God, okay? He's the son of man. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who created the world and gave the Sabbath to man. Therefore, he can give grain to his disciples when they are hungry. In addition to this defense of his disciples, Jesus, by deploying 1 Samuel 21, is placing all of these different characters within that narrative, right? If Jesus and his disciples are David and his mighty men, well, then who is King Saul? It's Herod. It's the Pharisees. Remember, it talks about Doeg the Edomite, who is there in the temple detained. And if you know the story, Doeg the Edomite is going to snitch on David. He's going to, when he's released, he's going to go, he's going to tell Saul, and he's going to then come back. Saul's going to command that the priest be killed for betraying him. None of, none of the, the soldiers will do it. Doeg the Edomite is going to do it. So Doeg the Edomite is actually going to come back later under command from King Saul and kill this Ahimelech because he helped David. So uh, Jesus is setting up these different narratives. Who's Doeg the Edomite who snitches? Well, it's these scribes and Pharisees who are uh, uh, who Jesus is talking to. Lastly, you might have wondered, uh, why does Jesus say that this happened in the days of Abiathar, the high priest? when in reality, it was Ahimelech who was priest. Uh, Many answers have been offered up uh, for this. Uh, uh, Some people just think it's a scribal error. Some people think Jesus just didn't know the Bible very well. Um, I think those people are wrong. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Who was Abiathar? Abiathar was Ahimelech's son. So Ahimelech is the priest. Abiathar is his son. And for a time, Abiathar served David. But later in the story, when Absalom betrays, he he attempts this coup against David, uh, Abiathar conspires with Absalom against David and betrays him. So when King Solomon comes to power, he actually deposes Abiathar and Zadok becomes high priest in his place. So Jesus, I think, has purposely called forth the memory of Abiathar because just like Abiathar, the priestly class is going to conspire and betray the true king. And after they do, they're going to be deposed. 
the priesthood is going to be transferred to Jesus, to the Son of Man, the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is setting them up. If you have ears to hear, and, and these scribes, they certainly knew 1 Samuel 21. Uh, so when Jesus is saying, have you not read? They, they've read it, but they clearly did not know how to interpret it. So this is a really devastating argument to the Pharisees. And in our final scene, we see how the Pharisees respond. So when you can't win arguments, uh, what do you do? Right? You start uh, throwing blows. So chapter three, verses one to six. And Jesus entered again into the synagogue and there was a man there which had a withered hand and they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth. And he saith unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? You think, how would they answer that? They don't say anything. It says, but they held their peace. And when Jesus had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. So this is the great irony and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They go to church to dig up dirt on God. They charge God with breaking the Sabbath. And when God heals a man's withered hand, they immediately conspire on the Sabbath how to commit murder against God. Okay. Jesus asks, asks them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Well, there's your answer. They think it is lawful to kill because that's what they conspire to do. Sin will make you very stupid. Sin will make you very irrational. And the Pharisees are dead in sin. And we might ask then, what is God's heart? What is the posture of his heart towards such wicked men? Well, Jesus reveals to us, reveals to us that God is both angered and grieved. God is both angered and grieved. He is angered at their actual breaking of the Sabbath, wanting to prevent a man from being healed, to stop his disciples from eating. And he is grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And this should teach us how to feel. This should teach us how to feel when we look out at the world around us and see all of its evils and absurdities. Like Jesus, we should be outraged that God's law is trampled upon, that the Sabbath is not a day of rest and worship for Americans. It's not a day of joyful feasting unto the Lord, but rather a day of selfish and carnal pleasure of business as usual, of football, of other things, other amusements, with no regard to the Lord who made us. I'll close with this. If Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, then he is the creator. He is the Lord of everything else. You can't have Jesus being just the Lord of one day of the week for just one day of your life. He is either Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of everything else, or he's not Lord at all. God promises in his word that if we observe this day of rest, if we worship him as he commands, then truly we shall be blessed. We shall be blessed. For as God declares in Isaiah 58, it says this, if thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, 
and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. And I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. God wants to give us life. He wants to give us rest and joy and all those blessings of the covenant. Psalm 1611 says, at thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And that rest and those pleasures are offered to all in the gospel. It is offered even to scribes and Pharisees, to hypocrites and Sabbath breakers. And they are offered to all of us anew today. So repent and believe in the Lord of the Sabbath and he will give you rest. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.